Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, as we continue our study of this magnificent book that Paul has written about the gospel. We are in this section, uh, we just finished off 8 to 15, and now Paul is getting to the theme of the book in verses 16 and 17. I want to read this morning, beginning at verse 13. Paul writes, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we walk our way through this text here this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the truths of your word, that you would use your word as you see fit in our lives, and that we would see more of you, that we might worship you more, and that we might glorify you more. So be our teacher here today. We know that nothing of value will happen unless it is done through the Holy Spirit. And so teach us, I pray, in your name. Amen. Well, if you've ever been in church for very long, or if you've ever gone to Bible school, You'll know that there are those days in the church where we ha- there are often outreach days. And so everybody is leaned on to go and to sign up to go street witnessing, to go door to door and to give the gospel. And for some of us, our heart is filled with fear. It turns to ice at the thought of having to share the gospel There's a fear that grips us. And there's a sense in which we're afraid to go share the gospel because we've done it before and we recognize that people don't respond very nicely to it. We get yelled at. We get called names. We get door slammed in our face. People don't like the gospel. They don't like hearing that God has expectations for them. That they're a sinner under the wrath of God, that they need to give up their hopes and dreams and to give their lives over to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because because of that, many of us simply are afraid to share the gospel anymore at all. In fact, the church has recognized that people, at the church at large anyway, has recognized that people don't accept the gospel They don't like to hear the hard truths. And so now we have a gospel that is given at church. And we need to dumb down the message because people don't like that message. And so we want to invite people to the church. And we want to bring them in. And then we want to be nice to them. Instead of giving them the gospel, let's give them good things. Let's give them positive things. Let's talk about what Jesus can do for you. He can help you with your problems. He can help you with your mortgage. He can make you rich. And certainly the prosperity gospel has gone around the world because everybody wants to be rich. Everybody wants to be healthy. And no one's offended by that. Who's offended by a loving Jesus who will give you everything that you want? And so that gospel goes forth. But in reality, what the church has said is has abdicated the true gospel is that we're ashamed of the gospel. 
We don't think that the gospel in its simplicity and its straightforwardness is good enough. We need to help God. We need to help God because the gospel in itself, we know it's, well, it's offensive. So let's put it aside and let's, let's do some other things and maybe we can manipulate people and maybe if we get them to know us long enough and if they hear the truths of the word long enough with us, they'll get saved. Well, we know that there is a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. There's a temptation to pull our punches in conversations, to pull back and our praises of the Lord when the unsaved are around. But Paul is going to deal with that here in in our text today. And Paul declares, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then Paul is going to launch in the rest of this, these verses, and he's really going to give us six reasons why we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. Now, we're only going to get to two of them today, but he's going to give us six reasons why we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. Now, I want to remind you that as we've been studying, as just before we get into our text, as we've been studying the book of Romans, this book is, is about the gospel, and it is the most complete treaty on the gospel. It's a com- the greatest explanation ever written of what the gospel is. And he will, he will give that through the whole book. Now we remember as Paul is writing this, he's writing this from Corinth around 56 AD. And again, we're flexible on our dates within a few years. We don't want to be dogmatic. But he is writing to this young, this church in Rome that he's never been to. A church that has finally been reunited, Jew and Gentile, after coming together. And so Paul began this letter really in the verse 7 verses, giving us reasons why we should study the book of Romans. And he, he lays out his credentials at the front. And he says, listen, this gospel, you should listen to it because of who I am, who I've written to you. He says, read this book because it's about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he lays out these reasons. This is why you should be studying this book. And then verses 8 to 15, he begins to really give the historical background of why he was wanting to visit and why he couldn't visit and the conditions under which he wrote this book. But in doing so, he laid out really commitments that we need to make to one another in relationships as believers. And so after he provides a formal introduction to this letter, notice in verse 6, he introduces us, as we mentioned earlier, to the theme of the gospel of, of this book. The theme is the gospel, and he develops this theme a little bit in verse 17. And he gives us a brief exposition of exactly what the gospel is. And it's it's really this. The gospel is simply a message about what? The righteousness of God. He says that right here in our text. It's about, for it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's about the righteousness of God and how can we be righteous? How can we be in right standing with God, the righteous God? And ultimately, we will see that the only way to be right with God is for what? To take it as a gift by faith. You cannot earn it. It cannot be something that you can make yourself. It must be received. So verses 16 and 17 then establish the theme or the thesis of this book. And the rest of the letter, again, we said, ultimately demonstrates or shows you an experience bounds on what the gospel is really but here we have the essence of biblical christianity now i want to remind you um sorry now notice paul as he begins this statement this thesis of the letter and as he starts this letter about the gospel he kind of starts in a way that might give you a little bit of a a Like you might look at it and as you look at it, you're kind of like surprised that he starts here. 
Because he begins with, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, is the, for it is the power of God for salvation. So he starts with this phrase, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, why would you say that, Paul? Why would you say that? Because after all, if we look at the Apostle Paul, he was charging everywhere, wasn't he? I mean, you take the list of all of the things that he went through, all the beatings, all the time he was stoned, all the times he was thrown out of town, the shipwrecks, the way he stood up in front of people, you would say, Paul, why on earth would you have to put this in here? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, number one, Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, I, I recognize I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I've seen its power. I've seen what it's done. But I think Paul recognizes for believers and all believers that there's a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. There's a temptation for us to hold on to that gospel and then when it's time to share it, when it's time for us to, to give it out, we hold back. Now, it's interesting because this word ashamed here is really a, a strong word. It, it, it's made up of, an, of two words, um, one which, which is really upon, it's an intensifier, and then the word humiliated or shame. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I am not, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And there's a sense in what he's, he's saying this. I'm not ashamed in the fact that I will not keep my mouth shut. We often think of shame as just being a feeling of, of, of you know, where you, you feel awful. But here he says, actually, I'm not ashamed in the fact that I will, not, it, I will not be so ashamed of the gospel that I won't open my mouth. This won't keep me from proclaiming it. Now, that doesn't mean that Paul might not have some trepidation, but what he's saying is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel to the point where it keeps my mouth, what? Shut. I will not keep my mouth shut. The gospel must come forth. After all, I was called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel. I was sent to the Gentiles, and I will what? I will open my mouth. I will never keep my mouth shut. Now, it's interesting because when we think of, of shame, we, we, we think of an inadequacy or inferiority. But for the first century Jew, shame, shame was more than just a feeling. Shame was a loss of status. In fact, Paul lived in a, in a society, a shame and honor society. And for them, we, we tend to live in a society, first of all, that has no shame at all now. Everything goes, anything goes. But back then, your reputation meant everything. It, it, was, it was what you clung to. And so in the New Testament, to, to be shamed means to lose your reputation. It's often used of rich people who had status, who had a, a certain um, well, status in, in, the, in society. They had a certain position, and now they had lost it. And for them, shame was everything. They wanted honor. You, 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 we, we talk about right and wrong in our society, at least we have for the longest time, where we, we deal in right and wrong. They dealt in shame and honor. So for them, it wasn't so much whether what you did was right and wrong, it was whether what you did brought dishonor to your family or, or you lost your status and reputation, right? And so we would say this, you can cheat, just don't get caught, right? You can steal, just don't get caught. Don't shame the family, don't bring dishonor to the family. And so Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed in a, in, a, in a culture that recognized and stood up for shame. Now, there was one particular punishment or one thing that was done that was designated to humiliate people in the Roman culture. There was one process that was desired to bring greater humiliation and to bring someone lower and lose your honor more than any other thing. And that was crucifixion. 
Crucifixion was the lowest form of punishment and the, the most and was completely designed to humiliate the victim. That was the co- complete process, not just to kill them, but to humiliate them. Every step of that process was designed to bring that person down and humiliate them. And in fact, it was so awful that the Roman citizens could not be crucified. That was in their law. If you were a Roman citizen, you could not die by crucifixion. It was for the low people. It was for those, the worst criminals. And so they had several steps that they went through in order to humiliate the person. It began with a public trial. They took the person, they took the victim, and they gave them a public trial, not because they needed transparency. This wasn't about transparency. This was about letting everybody know that this person was on trial for a crime. It was intended to degrade the status of the person and to label them as a lower person. So they weren't interested in giving you a trial so that, you know, the public could see that you that what was taking place and the decision was honorable, it was to degrade that person. Then they would flog the person. We're going to flog that person and, tor- and torture them. And again, it was the purpose was what to degrade them. So you have really, <clears throat> in some sense, psychologically, uh, shame them by the public trial, and now you have physically humiliated them by, by leaving them a bloody pulp. If that wasn't enough, the victims were crucified usually naked so that they were up for public display. They were often put on the cross where they would sometimes stay for days. They were up there for sometimes for days before they passed away. This is why they broke Jesus. They came to break the legs, right? So that they could no longer breathe. Just push themselves up. In that process, often the person on the cross would soil themselves, again degrading themselves. Their personal property was taken away. They were forced to bring to carry their cross up to where they would be crucified down the streets to make everyone recognize who they were. They also became crude forms of public entertainment for those who fancied that. They often came, right, as they did at Christ's crucifixion, to ridicule, to make fun of, right? To bring them down. Even sometimes they put them on the crosses in distorted and whimsical ways. To humiliate, to bring down. Everything that was designed of this public execution to shame that person, to remove their honor. To make them a public person of derision and shame. In fact, you just didn't speak about crucifixion in Roman circles. That wasn't polite speaking. It was so despicable, you just didn't bring it up. You didn't talk about it. It wasn't something that you certainly would bring up in mixed company, let alone bring it up in conversation. Now, we can't really understand this in our society. We don't, we don't have shame and honor. We don't live in a, in, a, in a place where we see crucifixion. But this is the political climate or the culture climate in which Paul lived. He's bringing the gospel to this. And he's bringing, what, a crucified Savior to them. Can you imagine? You're bringing a crucified Savior to them 
And you're saying, I'm bringing the most shamed person in the most shamed way, and this is the one you are to believe in. This is the one that you are to what? Get salvation in. This is the one that you must worship. Are you kidding me? So you can imagine that there would be a temptation to what? Be ashamed of the gospel. To not want to say anything. To hide it. You don't want public disgrace. Jesus certainly knew that his disciples would be tempted to be ashamed. He said in Mark 8.38, Whoever is ashamed of me in my words... Okay, and that's my teaching, that includes the gospel. In this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his angels. And Jesus said, there's a temptation for you to be ashamed of me, and if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. It was even a temptation for Paul. I think Paul writes this, and I think he writes it recognizing that we sometimes put Paul so far up that we think he's not human. And, and yet, there must have been times where Paul was tempted. Ephesians 6, 19, he says, Pray on behalf that the utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the, with boldness the mystery of the gospel. In other words, Pray that I'm not tempted to pull my punches. Pray that I'm not tempted when I get up front to not say the things that need to be said. He says, For the gospel which I'm an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul knew that even he could be tempted. Even this guy who went through all of those trials to give the gospel, that he too could be tempted. Certainly, Paul speaks to his own disciples on the same thing. He talked to Timothy. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to to the power of God. Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of Christ. I know it's difficult. I know it brings shame here on this earth, but don't be ashamed. Paul certainly would have understood that it would be a temptation for those in Rome, in this evil city, a hostile city, a city that was the center of, and the power of the empire, filled with corruption. If you remember in the book of Acts, Paul is imprisoned during his first imprisonment. And then at the end, he's imprisoned the second time. And during that second imprisonment, he writes this letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1. Verse 15, and he has been imprisoned and everyone's deserted him. In fact, he says, all those who are in Asia have turned away from me. I've been shamed. I've been put in jail. And then he says this about Onephorus. Was not, he says, Onephorus, who was not ashamed of my chains. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel and the chains that brought Paul into prison. And I think if we're honest here this morning, there have been times where every one of us has been tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. If we look back at our conversations and we look back at our, our opportunities, and when we've had the chance to speak for Christ and we've had a chance to share the gospel, how we may have shrunk back. The world is still intolerant. In fact, it's getting more intolerant and the world is getting more belligerent against Christianity. Everything that is, that is seen as 
biblical is now not just seen as not good or not the best, but it's now as seen as evil. And there can be a tendency for us now to say, well, I need to watch what I say. If I say something, I might end up in jail. I might get into trouble. I don't want to be yelled at. I don't want someone to throw stuff at me. And as our culture gets more and more hostile, as the media, as, as the social posts come, it grows more and more hostile, more and more intolerant. And so we need to ask the Lord, Lord, keep me from what? Being ashamed of the gospel. Some of you might say, well, you know what? I've never been ashamed of the gospel. I've never, ever been ashamed of the gospel. Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. If you've never been ashamed of the gospel, maybe the real reason is that you're not, uh, is not that you're such an acceptably good Christian, but rather your understanding of the Christian mes- message has never been that clear. <laughs> right? Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. And so we, we recognize, if we understand the gospel, we recognize the offense. And there's, there's a tendency for us to be ashamed. It's a temptation because the gospel of Christ is nothing but the story about a publicly shamed man. Because of that, the Greeks and the Romans... It was just foolishness. You look at 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. We preach Christ crucified to the Gentiles' foolishness. A shamed man on a cross. How could God be on a cross, right? Just foolishness. And to the Jews, it was a stumbling block. Notice verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block. They couldn't conceive. How could the Messiah ever be shamed? How could God ever be on the cross? This was to them blasphemy. The Messiah was to come. He was to be the conqueror. He was the king. And how now you're trying to tell us that this carpenter's son from Galilee is, is, his, is the Messiah to come? Look at the way he died like a common criminal. It cannot be. They would have pointed to Deuteronomy 21-23. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He's, he's not the Messiah. He's cursed of God. He's cursed of God. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. And he says, you need not to be ashamed. And he says, here, I want to tell you why you shouldn't be ashamed. At this point, you're saying, well, what do I do? How do I not be ashamed of the gospel? I don't want to be ashamed of the gospel. Or I am ashamed of the gospel and I'm ashamed that I'm ashamed. Well, Paul gives us two reasons today why we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. First one is because it's the power of God. And secondly, in verse 16, because it produces salvation. First of all, the first reason is simply this, because it's the power of God. Look at verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel for, because, here's the reason, it's the power of God. Now Paul's really making two statements about the gospel here. You'll notice that he, he says it is the power of God. Now that statement should ring in our mind, because Paul said back in verse 1, called as an apostle, set apart for what? The gospel of God. And we looked at that and he's saying, listen, this power, just like the gospel is sourced in God, this power is sourced in God. This power in the gospel comes from God himself. He's the source of the announcements and he's the source of the power that is in the gospel. But he also says in verse 6 that it is not just sourced in him, but it is powerful. 
It is powerful. Now you would have to say this, whatever this gospel is, and, and, and we, we understand the gospel is about the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect life that he lived here on earth as a perfect human being, God and man dying on the cross to pay the price for sin, being buried and rising again on the third day, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father and will return, and that our need to have faith and believe in what he has done. But when you look at that foolish message, that foolish message that started in the first century particularly, I mean, it's still foolish to people now. They don't even believe that there's a God. Certainly they don't believe that man isn't good. Certainly don't want to be told they're a sinner. But imagine the gospel going forth in the first century and this shameful story, this shameful gospel that's going forth. And yet... Look at the church. Look at the church. It starts at Pentecost, 3,000 people in one day, and then the church begins to spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, and it's spreading, and it's going everywhere. And the only thing that we can say is this, there must be something in that message that works because it's going against all odds. This should, this should fall on deaf ears everywhere, and yet it's still going. And we would say this, in the gospel message is the power of an omnipotent God. It is the power of God that is in the message. And it is through the gospel that God now exercises control and power in the human soul. Certainly the Romans were proud of their military power. They were the probably the most efficient army ever, at least for their time, they had perfected the art of war. And they, they were proud how they would go to war and win in battle. But this power has the power of God, and this power not only doesn't just destroy, but it has the power to what? To rescue. Now the Greek word for power here is the word dunamis. It's a word that talks about intrinsic power. There's something intrinsic by its nature, and therefore it is able to accomplish what it sets out to do. It has the power to, to, to once it enacts itself, it has the power to do as it chooses. It is this power here that is in the gospel. This same word is used of the, of, of the power that was used to raise Jesus from the dead. He was raised by the power of God. The Holy Spirit raised him. Jesus raised himself. And God the Father raised him. And that power is the same, that life-giving power is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. It's the same power that was used to create the universe. And he says, this power is in the gospel. It's a rescuing power. In fact, this, this power is used in Exodus chapter 12, verse 17, where God is bringing Israel out and he's bringing them out of Egypt and he's, he's bringing them out by his power. It is God's power that rescues them, that takes that nation out of the land of Egypt and brings them to the promised land. Now, I want you to notice this. He does not say that the gospel is about the power of God. Look at your Bible. He says it is what? It is the power of God. It is the gospel is itself power. That means God uses the gospel to save sinners. It is his means to save sinners. He saves them through the message of the gospel. Now, when we were studying the book of James several years back now, James addressed this when he said in James 1.18, God brought us forth by the word of truth. In other words, when you heard the gospel, the gospel is what God used to birth you, to give you life. It was by the gospel that you were what? Made spiritually alive. Peter said the same thing. 
in 1 Peter 1.23, we were what? Born again. We were what? Given new spiritual lives. We were birthed. We were given the life of God. And he says this, through the living and enduring word of God. God's word, specifically the gospel, is the instrument that God uses to bring a spiritually dead heart to life. In, in fact, the gospel's power lies in the fact that it is through the gospel message God calls sinners to himself. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Or, t- or turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Beginning at verse 18. Paul says, For the word of the cross, that is the message about about the cross, the message of what Christ did dying for sins on the cross, that shameful act according to the first century culture, is the foolishness is foolishness to those who are perishing, right? They looked at that message. It's vulgar. These people are vulgar. The message is vulgar. Now you might look at this message here this morning and say, well, that's, it's a bit odd. I have to agree with that. And it may just be because you're not a believer. Maybe you're part of the perishing. Because you see it not as the beauty of God's rescue, but you see it as something odd and maybe vulgar. But to us who are being saved, he says, it's the power of God. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. In other words, God made it so that the world, that you could not come on your own that you couldn't understand the gospel and the gospel wasn't something that you could grasp. You couldn't manufacture it in your flesh. You couldn't be born into it. It could, didn't, your ethnicity didn't matter. He would not allow people to arrive at the truth. It doesn't come from human wisdom. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached. Or we could really just say through the gospel. To save what? Those who believe. Now how does he do that? Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, there's a particular group, the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He's saying the gospel is the instrument that God uses to call people to himself. In other words, if you're a believer here today, you came through the gospel, you had to hear the gospel, you had to respond to the gospel, and he called you. You may look like you were going to him, but you were going to him because he was drawing you to himself. And this is why in evangelism class, we talked about the content of the gospel. There's a minimum content of the gospel that we must give to people. And anything that we take away from the gospel makes it not the true gospel, and it doesn't make it a saving gospel. You cannot come to salvation coming to a Jesus that wants to give you everything, who's your genie in the bottle, but you haven't repented of your sins. You haven't made him Lord of your life. You haven't decided that you will now live for him. The gospel is God calling you to himself. The gospel is an announcement to everyone proclaiming that what God has done and will do to those who believe. And you see that general call. The gospel is given, right, to the Jew and to the Greek. Right? They thought it was foolishness. But there's this specific call, the called. 
and God, it's God's doing as God imparts life by his power. One of the things that we should take comfort from this is recognizing that since the gospel is the power of God, guess what? It's not up to you. You can sleep at night because no one's going to hell because you didn't get the gospel right. We can be so afraid to share the gospel because we're going to be afraid that we won't do it right. But God's the one who saves. Now, we need to be faithful to study and to know the gospel, but in no conversation will you be perfect. So just relax about that. But you give what you have, and, the, and whatever you give, God has intended as you desire to serve him and share the gospel, and then you just leave it. This allows you to sleep at night. Because if salvation depended on you and it was necessary, then you would, you would never sleep. Because we have children that are unsaved and we have loved ones who are unsaved and we have co-workers that are unsaved and we desire their salvation, and, but we can't do it. God does it. It's his power that saves. Paul described it this way in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. He said, my gospel came to you. Now, I, know, I just want to say this first. God saves, he justifies, he sanctifies, he glorifies for his glory. Now when we say it is the power of God, don't misunderstand. The power is not in the letters or the words of the gospel. All right? It's not in the, it's not in the letters and the words. These are in themselves don't have power to save. Paul described it this way in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. My gospel came to you not in word only... All right, so not just in letters. My gospel came to you in not, in, not in word only, but in power and in what? The Holy Spirit. In other words, the gospel goes forth in the power of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that is convicting and illuminating the truths of the gospel so that the message of the gospel is understood. And that's what he uses to what? Bring people to faith. And so, when we're sharing the gospel, we must recognize the power of the gospel. That the power of the gospel is in the power of the Holy Spirit as he convicts that heart as he regenerates it and dwells and baptizes and seals it this is the work of the holy spirit our job is just to give it but we must be convinced of the power of the gospel every single one of you here today who's a believer has fell underneath that power if you're a believer here it's because of the power of god working in the gospel to regenerate you and bring you to salvation and so don't be ashamed of that message. You don't know. It is the power to save, and God will save in his time. Don't be ashamed to share it. Don't be ashamed, ashamed to give it out. Remember this. In some cases, what? God brings life. That gospel brings life, and God chooses to save. God works with the power of the gospel. We also know this, that God uses the gospel not just to save, but to harden. As one theologian said, the same sun that melts snow hardens clay. And the gospel also goes forth, and this is part of our job, is to give the gospel even to those who what? Reject it. And will actually, God will use it to show sin and guilt of that person, and he will ultimately bring condemnation on them. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, But thanks be to God, we are, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. We go, we share, the gospel goes forth. For we are the fragments of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are what? Perishing. To one, an aroma 
from death to death to another aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as for from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Paul says God, God will use the gospel as he sees fit to bring life and also to confirm the rejection of others. And Paul says, don't be ashamed of this gospel. Regardless, bring the gospel because it is the power of God. And that's what God has placed us here before. So Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. It is the power of God. Let it loose. Well, secondly, not only does the gospel, is it the power of God, but the gospel also produces salvation. Look at verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for, for it is the power of God for salvation. Now that's the main idea here. Paul's not uh, commenting in verse 16 about God's general power. He's not talking about God's creative power. We know that God created the universe. We're not, he's not, we're not talk, talking about his unsearchable power, his mighty power, his great power, his incomprehensible power, his strong power. We're not talking about his sustaining power. We're talking about his rescuing power. In other words, his saving power. He says that God works in the gospel to produce what? Salvation. Now Paul uses this word for salvation, I think about 50, different, 50 times in his writings. And Paul uses it exclusively for spiritual deliverance. He does not use it for physical deliverance. It can be used that way, but Paul never uses it that way in, its, in, in the various forms in which he uses it. This word is a general term and refers to everything that God does to bring a sinner into proper relationship with him. It includes salvation. It includes things like justification, redemption, sanctification, and even glorification. Salvation is a large concept that includes all of that. And the good news, the gospel, is how that salvation becomes our, ours. We are saved through the gospel. So the question becomes, what, what does it mean to be saved? You know, that's a good word, but what does it mean? Well, it simply means to be rescued, to rescue. We're talking about a spiritual rescue here, but the question is, rescued from what? Or rescued to who? Now, as we think of salvation, we generally think of salvation in the negative, don't we? I'm saved from sin. I'm saved from death. I'm saved from God's wrath. But it's also being saved to something. In other words, we're saved from and we're saved to. And I just want to look at a couple of things that we have that we have been saved from and saved to. First of all, he says we've been saved from objective guilt to righteousness. Look at chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 of Romans. Paul has just finished the indictment of the human condition. He's talked about how man is completely sinful, how man is completely depraved, man is completely going his own way, man does not seek God. And then he says this in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, both Jews who have written the law and Gentiles who have the law written in their heart, right? This goes to all humanity. It's not, it's not like, oh, that's only to Jews. 
And the result of that, this law, is that every mouth may be closed. And he's saying, again, he's not saying that people can't speak. He's saying that in the judgment, there's going to be nothing to say. There's going to be, no one is going to stand before God and give a defense. Every mouth will be closed and all the world may become literally guilty before God. Everyone is guilty. Because through the law, everyone learned about the nature of sin. So he says, there's objective guilt. You are guilty. There's no question about it. You, you don't say, well, maybe. It's kind of, well, I think maybe. There's objective guilt before God here. But we're saved from that guilt to righteousness. He says... We have been given the righteousness of Christ. We have now, that has now been given to us. And now we have that objective righteousness of Christ. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might have what? The righteousness of God in him. We're also saved from moral corruption to holiness. You look at Romans chapter 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks God. All have turned aside. They have become useless. We talked about that being like soured milk. You throw it away. There's none that does good in the sight of God, right? Not saying that people don't do nice things, but they can do nothing for the glory of God, nothing of spiritual value, not one. And then he says, verse 18, and there's no fear before their eyes. Here's the ultimate indictment. Every sinner lives as though God doesn't exist. They don't care what he says. They don't care what he, he desires. Then he gets to chapter 6 and he says, we are now what? Slaves of righteousness. We were once morally corrupt. We were once, once unholy, but now we are slaves of righteousness. And then he gets to chapter 12 and he says, now, now because we're saved, because of salvation, we are able to what? Present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We went from corruption to holiness. We're saved from the wrath of God to the love of God. He says in Romans chapter 5, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Verse 9 much more, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We used to live under God's anger. We were under his wrath. Remember, God is not just angry with sin. He said he's angry with sinners every day. He doesn't just throw sin into hell. He throws, what, sinners into hell. Where once we lived under wrath, we now live what? Under the love of God. His love is now upon us. His covenant love, a love that is unceasing, a love that is sacrificial for our good, a love that desires for our best. A love that causes us to be called what? His children. His children. That love is so strong, Paul says in chapter 8, what? Who can separate us from the love of God? Then he, he lists everything in the kitchen sink and he runs out of time because he realizes he's got to close the letter and he just stops. But the point is nothing. Nothing. We were enemies of Christ. We were alienated for him. Romans 5.10 while we were enemies, we were what reconciled to God. We were once alienated, now we've brought in, been in, brought into fellowship with him. We were saved from slavery to freedom of sin. We were saved from eternal death to eternal life. These are all things that God has done for us. We'll even one day be saved from our decaying bodies. Now, not yet. I hate to tell you that, not yet, but we will be, right? We will be glorified one day and we will be given a new body, a glorified body, one that doesn't decay. I'm not sure what age we'll be. Hoping it's 25. But anyway, 
But we, we do know that we will get, receive a new body and He has saved us from that. We've been saved from all of those things. And it's interesting because Scripture speaks of our salvation in three ways. It speaks in three tenses, past, present, and future, right? Past tense. It says, in hope we have what? Have been saved. In the present, by grace you have been what? Saved, Ephesians 2.5. And then 1 Corinthians 1.18 that we read a moment ago says what? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. That points to our sanctification. We are being saved from the power of sin in our lives in the past, from the penalty of sin in the future. It speaks of our salvation when we will, for example, in Ephesians, Romans 5, 9, much more than having been justified as blood, what we will be saved. There's a future coming where we will be glorified. We are saved from the wrath of God, nearer than we were our glorification. And so there's this whole concept of we were justified in the past, we are being sanctified in the present, and we will ultimately be completely sanctified in our glorification in the future. And God does this through what? His power through the gospel for salvation. That's the purpose of the gospel. That's the power of God as he works to bring people to salvation. And if you're saved here today, it is because of the power of God for salvation. The gospel went forth. The gospel was used by the Holy Spirit in your life. And, it, and he regenerated. You made new, new. You came in faith and repentance. And now you are restored. You have salvation. Salvation that will continue in glorification forever. Paul says, I can't be ashamed of that instrument. I can't be ashamed of the gospel. I know what it's done in my life, Paul says. God, God called me. I was going to kill Christians and God struck me down on the road to Damascus. God's power saved me. And Paul's conversion is no different than anybody else. You had a sinner who was going against God, who hated God, didn't like anything about God until God reached down, regenerated him, gave him a new heart, they came, and you came in faith and repentance because you saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, how can we be ashamed of that message? Because it is, even, even though it's a message that seems against culture, it seems demeaning, it seems it makes people angry, but it recognizes it for what it is. It is the power of God for salvation. And the only way that people will get saved and the only way that God will build his church is if we are faithful to proclaim it. And so Paul says, take a look at it again. Take a look at the gospel again. Remember its power. Remember its purpose. And when you do that, you won't be ashamed. You'll be excited to share it because you know that God will, can use it and God will use it. Don't be afraid. As we sit here this morning, we have people sitting in two states. There are those who are perishing and there are those have already been rescued. If you're perishing, you're lost. You're under the wrath of God. And you are sitting here today and God has used, will use the gospel today to condemn you more if you continue to reject it. And your punishment will be even stronger because the gospel has gone forth. You have heard it and you have rejected it. And you have said, I will not have this man rule over me. I will not respond to it. It is foolishness to me. But Luke tells us, the Son of Man has come to seek and to rescue that which was lost. Christ seeks people. God sent his son, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. 
And we know that God, on God's part, He calls us and that He regenerates us and He brings us to Him. But on our part, we are called to respond to, in faith to the call of the gospel. You cannot wait as if God is somehow going to download salvation into you. The fact is, is as you hear the gospel, hear the voice of the shepherd, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow. In other words, there is life giving power in the gospel. And if your desire today is to come, he will take you because you are his. And so today, do not leave Bowmanville Baptist Church without examining your heart and finding out who you are before Christ. Who do you say that he is? And then fall at his feet and go from one who is perishing to one who is rescued. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God for salvation. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the gospel that was proclaimed to us that we might be made your sons and daughters. We thank you for the power that is in us to save. And we pray that we would never be ashamed of it, but we would recognize the power that was in our lives, the power that the gospel possesses, and that we would recognize that you use this to save people, that we would boldly proclaim it and allow you to use it as you see fit. May we never be ashamed. May we be able to say like Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God for salvation. In your name, amen.